0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello. Welcome. You're listening to new books in gender studies. My name is Shohini Chatterjee, and I'm a PhD candidate and Vania scholar in the Department of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I am delighted to have Dr. Shannon Phillip with us today at NBN. Dr. Philip is a sociologist and ethnographer and is currently lecturer at the University of East Anglia and was previously a postdoctoral research associate at the Department of Sociology, University of Cambridge. Today we'll be in conversation with Dr. Philip's new book, Becoming Young Men in a New India Masculinities, Gender Relations, and Violence in the Post Colony, published by the University of Cambridge Press in 2022. Welcome to the New Books Network, Shannon.
1: Thank you, Sophie. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here and very excited about this conversation.
2: Me too. I'm very much looking forward uh, to being in conversation with you about your fascinating book. Um, could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual journey and how it has shaped
1: your book? Certainly. So um, I guess growing up in India as a as a young person, particularly as a queer young person, the question of what was expected of me, how I'm supposed to behave, supposed to act as a man has always been something that I have sort of grown up with and internalized but also be, been at odds with. Um, so thinking about my own queerness and growing up in India has always made me reflect on this question of these expectations that people have or my parents had or my family had or my school had from from what a man or boy should be, how he should walk, how he should talk, um, how he should act. And that's what the intellectual pursuit of this particular book was really um, founded upon this question of what is expected of men. How does one become a man? How does one prove or act like they are a man um, in in an Indian setting, in an Indian context? And particularly because in India we have such high um, preferences for male children, son preferences, dowry which favors men being a man being a boy comes with a lot of privileges and a lot of power um, and these powers and these privileges can be used in multiple ways and can can be can have very damaging consequences um, for women and for other non-masculine bodies but, it can also produce a lot of anxieties and vulnerabilities for men themselves. Um, And so it was really this fluidity between both the power that men have in Indian society, but then these expectations and obligations that they have to perform to, um, that led me to this this project. Um, What also happened when I was starting my PhD and sort of the long intellectual trajectory led to this idea of studying men and masculinities in in India um, um, in around 2015, was the effect of the post Nirbhaya moment. So, Nirbhaya happened in 2012, December 2012, when this young woman was gang raped um, in New Delhi. And there was huge public outcry around women's safety and how we can make India safer or Delhi in particular safer. Delhi was being labeled as the rape capital of India at the time. And what I thought was again missing from that whole discussion was the focus on men or the focus on masculinities. The whole idea was how do we make women safer in in Delhi or in India, but but we weren't really asking why are women unsafe or who is making women unsafe um, in a city like Delhi. And so it constantly felt that, again, masculinities were being assumed or imagined, but not really taken up or questioned. Um, And so that was the other moment that I wanted to put in conversation with my own um, sort of personal and intellectual inquiry into what what expectations there are around being a man with this political dynamic of what is essentially men's violence towards women and very high levels of men's violence towards women um, in India and and how those two things might come together. That's what I think the book is really looking at, the power, the violence, uh, the privileges, that men have in Indian society, but equally some vulnerability, some fragility, some cracks in these power um, dynamics that men experience and enjoy in India. So it's that constant balance of becoming young men in India and the the opportunities, the challenges it produces, but also the anxieties and aspirations that are garnered by it. Um, Yeah.
2: Right. Um. Could you tell our audience at the very outset how you define youth, youth cultures, and New India in your book, and how economic dependency in particular figures in these definitions?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, youth, for example, in youth sociology has really been thought about as people who are dependent on each other. And in the Indian context, it's somehow similar that young people are dependent on their families. And so they continue to be youth. But it becomes much more complicated in the very specific heteropatriarchal arrangements of Indian society. So because of the way arranged marriages are structured and dowry and caste practices, youth actually is a much more complicated category in India. Um, and so it's not age-specific in that sense, but it's somehow, for me, a category that is based on dependence of various forms, of interdependence of various forms, um, and it's a generationally specific category. So, for a lot of the young people that I was with, they wanted to think of themselves as young, but also as men, um, and so they would define youth for themselves as um, as as spaces away from the home, away from family, you know, where they are not so completely dependent on their parents. Um, so going to the mall is part becomes part of youth culture where they can experience um, or enjoy youth culture. Spaces essentially outside the home became quite an important part of expressing or enjoying this youth culture. For for how my young men were seeing it, um, it's yeah, it's quite hard to I think define it economically. Um, but rather more, I think, culturally and socially. But of course, economics is a part of it because the young people I was working with are not poor young people, right? So they, they have pocket money. Some of them have jobs. Uh, they can afford to buy the latest iPhones. They have cars. They have sometimes designer clothes. So they um, they are not poor in that sense, um, economically poor, but they are nonetheless economically dependent um, or rather Rather than economic dependence, they're more class dependent on their parents, right? So this consumption and the money is helpful for them in terms of class, in terms of performing middle-classness. Um, so they they want to look and appear like middle-class young people. Um, and so that's why they need these fancy gadgets and they need these um, various commodities in their lives. Um, And for some of those things, they do have to depend on their parents. They are are controlled by their parents to a great extent. Um, And and up until they're married, they are largely under their parents' watch. Their parents are trying to control their sexualities and um, make sure that these boys don't interact with too many girls. Um, So trying to sort of police their behavior. And likewise, women's sexualities are also being policed by by their parents. So the whole question of, I think, youth, youth cultures and economic dependency are really weaved in within each other. Um, And the question of class becomes quite central. Class and generation become quite central. Um, And this idea of marriage is also quite central, I think, in how we would define youth, youth cultures and uh, its relationship to economic dependency.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the question of dependency really fascinates me because I think capitalism produces and reviles dependency. Um, yeah, absolutely, I agree. Um, you state um, in the book that young middle class and, and dominant caste men foster class, gender, and sexual entitlement over various urban spaces as well as bodies that inhabit those spaces. Um, could you elaborate on the nature of this entitlement? and how it is informed by class caste and and indeed gender
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, what is well known again in the Indian gender scholarship is the privileges that are attributed to boys right from birth. So son preference is such an important, um, important practice that we have in India. And that privileging of men continues all the way into dowry and then beyond, right? So, men already are extremely privileged beings in many ways in the particular heteropatriarchal context that we have in India. But it's actually within that patriarchal privilege that class privilege and caste privilege get amplified or, get, or compound this masculine privilege, I would argue. So with with my young men, for example, they come from, I mean, they are privileged already because they're men. So they uh, their families have always taken care of them. They want to the families want to invest in their education and things. But because they're middle-class young men, um, they themselves also get a lot of privileges of being middle-class, right? Because the way in which economic inequality in India is structured, the poor are very often, particularly as you were saying in capitalist India, poor, the poor are framed as a big burden on India, right? i mean modi himself talks about lifting off the burden of the lifting away the burden of the poor that's placed on the middle classes you know why should the middle class pay pay for the poor the poor should pay for themselves so the poor in india today have really been framed as a burden as a problem um, and the whole question of capitalism has been removed from it the poor are poor because they're not working hard they're not um, they're not ha- efficient workers, they are lazy, is the narrative that we have. But but of course, we know, or if we are critical scholars, we would know that capitalism is one of the major parts of the uh, the reasons for why poverty is produced and reproduced in India, so all of that gets completely obscured in these middle class narratives, where the middle classes think that they are actually the victims and they are they represent New India, and the poor are the burden. Um, so when those two things come together, where middle class privilege meets masculine privilege, which is the case with these young men, there's a compounding effect that these privileges have um, and both privileges are working through each other to strengthen each other. So middle class men really feel like they are the sons of India. They are the people who need to carry India forward. They need to show the good side of India to to outsiders, to the world that is watching. right? And they need to also then be these men who um, maintain Indian culture, quote unquote, Indian values, quote unquote, um, who respect, you know, Indian traditions, and so they are often reproducing patriarchal, heteropatriarchal ideas about themselves, about women, about families, in languages of of capital and new, um, uh, in in new ways. So, what I think, what is quite important, I think, in your question is that. What what is what is happening in in India today is that the development and capitalist growth, rather than reducing patriarchal inequalities, I would argue, are changing the nature of patriarchal inequalities and how they manifest in India today. There is a combined classed and uh, that's also casted privilege. I mean. Um, working with the gender privilege that's being reproduced in new and more insidious ways. Because these young men think of themselves as good men, as the new sons of India. They are educated, they are liberal in their opinions, they want to consume, they know how to go to the shopping malls and sit and eat and go for dates and things with women. So they think of themselves as modern men. But when it comes to women, they are still extremely patriarchal in their views. But they don't think of themselves as patriarchal. They think of themselves as knowing how to talk to women, how to treat women. That women like assertive men, and they think of poor men as problems, as the ones who are violent towards women, who are um, who need who are really the burden of India, um, and who need to be sorted out or gotten rid of somehow. So, in that sense, there's a bolstering of both. And the caste question is more complicated because caste for so these young men gets invisible. You know, we are modern men, we believe in gender equality. We don't believe in caste-based discrimination. We don't believe in looking down on, um, uh, on lower caste people. We are, we are beyond caste in that sense. So this very classic idea within critical um, Dalit studies of, of these young upper caste, middle caste men thinking of themselves as caste-less. Right Of being above caste and beyond caste, just like they would think of themselves as post-patriarchal. They think of themselves as new men. Um, but it, that's not at all the case. They are enjoying caste privilege as well as class privilege combined with gendered privilege and it's all working together.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, that's that's absolutely fascinating. Um, One of my key takeaways from your book is that um, you argue homosociality in urban spaces in India is constituted, among other things, by violence. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about how violence figures in homosocial relationalities um, that men are forging in New India.
1: Absolutely, I mean wherever we go in India on the streets, it's men hanging out with each other, um their arms all are draped over each other, holding hands often um but we would never see that kind of relationship between a man and a woman um where holding hands with a woman gets immediately marked. the heterosexuality of a man and a woman coming together is very visible, it's almost hypersexualized, right it's very obviously visible but in India, homoeroticism is largely pushed underground to a great level because of the power of homosociality. This homosociality is extremely, I would argue, hetero and patriarchal, hetero-patriarchal, in that it erases desire or hom- the possibility of homosexual desire from interactions between men, um, but, but nonetheless creates a very powerful bond amongst men, right? So a lot of scholars in India have written about how Often when men are having sex with men, they would think of it as musty or fun, you know, inconsequential actions. But with a woman, it's always sexual. You can't have a friendship with a woman. It's that relationship becomes very sexual very quickly. There's a hyper-sexualization of women that's happening. Um, and, and so I think that's where this element of violence comes in. Because the bond that men have, this homosocial bond, is really what I call in the book like a brotherhood, like a patriarchal brotherhood. Even the term that I kept encountering in my fieldwork was around "bhai." You know, "ye mera bhai," hai, this is my brother," "that is my," "he's my brother," and together, uh, let us go out as brothers and you know look at girls or try and catcall girls. There's a very strong brotherly bond, a very strong homosocial bond um, that is created, and. In the book, I'm arguing that this bond is created precisely because women are excluded from that bond. Women are treated as hypersexual beings, as being outside of this bond. And the brother, uh, this bhaichara, this brotherhood, is a deeply homosocial, not a homosexual. It can become homosexual, but it's largely homosocial bond that that. That, that is attempted to be carried, right? In the book, I question the the power of this homosociality too, but nonetheless, it is a very powerful thing. It allows the exclusion of women from these from this world of the bhai's or the brotherhood of the bhai's. So discussions with my young boy, my, with my young men, would often be at a cigarette stand or standing by the bike, talking about how, you know, my sister needs to be dropped or picked up because she can't travel by herself. So he needs help with another brother or can a, can a brother help him do something else because his mother needs to be dropped somewhere or the other. So this collective brotherhood, this collective homosociality starts to manage women's lives in public spaces, right? That's And that's where this violence really emerges so this brotherhood does not think of itself as violent or exclusionary they in fact think of themselves as highly protective of women my my sister of course she needs protection because she's not a bhai she can't roam around the streets she doesn't have anybody to help so i and my brothers have to help her um and so so women and their protection is a constant theme. But this protection is also then extremely violent. When a woman is by herself in a public space, um, she's seen to be out of place because the public space is, you know, the space of these brothers. We are hanging out by the cigarette stand. What is this woman coming to the cigarette stand for by herself or with these two girls? Um, she must be an obviously, quote unquote, loose woman or a public woman or a sex worker or um, or somehow um, not a proper, respectable woman, right? So there's violence that's beginning already from this stage of how the woman in a public space is perceived, because a woman's place is not in that space of this brotherhood. Um, But the space of the brotherhood is the boy's space. A phrase that I kept hearing in my fieldwork was that if boys spend too much time at home, they get spoiled. And if girls spend too much time outside the home, they get spoiled. So the idea that a woman who's outside of um, in in public spaces, outside of her domestic space, is is getting spoiled already, is interacting with too many men. It's meeting she's meeting these brothers and these boys in a boy's space, and that's not appropriate, right? And likewise, for for these boys, if they spend too much time at home, if they spend too much time with women and girls in the home, they get spoiled. For for a lot of young boys, it was about going out into the city, hanging out at the cigarette stand to learn how to be a boy, how to be a man, um, and how to sort of live in a new India amongst other men. It was from men that you learn how to be a man. And that's where the deepest level of inequality and the continuum of violence that takes on various forms begins really at this privileging of the brotherhood and this underprivileging and hypersexualization of women that's going on.
2: I was also wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your methodological choices and and the complexities that those choices involved and how they
1: have
2: and how those choices have and those complexities have shaped your book.
1: Absolutely. I mean, after the Nirbhaya incident, whenever I would talk to men about violence, you know, what is violence? Is there much violence? They would all be... Overly sensitive. Yes, there's a lot of violence. Um, India's sort of uh, the rape capital of the world. It's sort of a big embarrassment for us. And I would ask them who is violent. They would always talk about how how women are being violated by poor men or uneducated men. You know, I'm a good man. Middle class men would constantly talk about how I'm a good man, uh, but these poor men are violent. The men are coming from outside and violating women. They come from rural areas and violate women. It's these migrant men who are violating women. So for me, when I started talking to men and interviewing them to begin with, it was very difficult to get any sense of... um, you know men's own uh, violence because they have such a strong and clear narrative about externalizing violence. So interviewing as a methodology really was not yielding much because whenever I talked to middle-class men, they had all the right language on all the right words of um, what a man should say. Do you believe in women's rights? Yes, I absolutely believe in women's rights, and you know women should be respected. Violence towards women is wrong. It's really unfair. It's unjust. Um, that's the kind of narrative that I kept getting interviews. But as soon as the interview would finish and we would just be hanging out, guys would start checking out women. When they became slightly more relaxed with me, they would start then um, pointing women out to me, talking about women, catcalling women, um, trying to grope women. And so I realized actually there's a big divergence between what these interviews are revealing and what what the actual lived reality is revealing, when just hanging out is revealing. So I quickly realized that actually interviews was not going to cut it in terms of methodology. Um, but, but ethnographic hanging out, sort of this deep immersion with young men, would allow for more nuanced material to emerge. And that's what, that's what ended up happening. When I started hanging out with men deeply ethnographically, I started seeing this difference between what they say and what they do. And what they do is actually deeply uh, troubling and deeply problematic, and and that's what I then wanted to focus on the everyday actions of men rather than what they are saying, um, and so that's why I then ended up focusing on young men and their their everyday actions, and one of the things was about their bodies, as you precisely were saying. Um, Often in gender research, men are turned into abstractions. It's all about men and the mind. And within masculinity studies, there's a critique that women's bodies have been overanalyzed, right? There's an overemphasis on how women's bodies are treated and an underplaying of women's minds and women in abstract form. So that's another reason why I wanted to study men and their embodied practices. Because again, they would talk in abstractions. Yes, Delhi is very unsafe for women, but who is it unsafe from? That's completely obscured. But when I start homing in on that, it's actually unsafe because of the way men are. It's because of the way men roam around the city, the way the men hang around in the metro stations, or in the parks, or on the streets. So Men's bodies and their embodied practices again became a really important site for analytical inquiry because it was getting very easily obscured and hidden in this general discussion of violence towards women. And I wanted to more specifically look at men's violence towards women. What were these everyday actions and practices of men that was reproducing this violence? And that's why. Both ethnography, but also this deep immersion and the focus on the body, became quite an important methodological approach to studying this um, this this phenomenon that I was interested in.
2: Right. Building off of that, um, your your emphasis on the body, the second chapter of your book, you write about the production of commodified and commodifiable bodies of young men, uh, which you argue is representative of a new globalizing India um, that is significantly shaping urban relationalities. Um, Would you like to talk a little bit about the signifying body as a form of capital and its place in young men's becoming, as well as the violence and intimacies that are engendered through
1: it absolutely i mean so women's bodies have been long studied and there's a very important literature very important feminist queer literature on women's bodies in india Um, what has relatively been less studied is bodies of men and how they are changing because they are very dramatically changing so various beauty products Um, consumer products, gyms, um, music videos, they all feature men's bodies in very specific and important ways um, in contemporary India. In fact, if I'm correct, men's beauty products are the largest growing market of um, cosmetics and grooming products in the world right now. So there is a new focus through capitalist expansion on men's bodies and commodifying men's bodies. Um, So A lot of men are very concerned about how their bodies look, what their bodies are like, uh, what parts of their bodies are big and small, and how they need to look um, like the the kinds of representations of masculinities that are in the films, in the ads. So embodying middle class, middle classness through the body has become quite an important practice for young men. And they keep Emphasizing working on the body as hard work, um, you know, I'm going to the gym because I want to clear my head and I want to build a strong body so that people respect me. People can see me um, as a as a modern man who takes care of himself and is well is well put together. So, in that sense, the body is a very important um, catalyst of demonstrating class, but also gender, because the The way you use your body, the way you move your body is a very important way of demonstrating gender. If a man is too effeminate, then that body is not performing masculinity appropriately. So the body has to be then uh, de-effeminized and turned into a slightly more macho performing body. So constantly during my research in Delhi, young men would tell me that I should walk with my legs more apart, I should stop smiling as much, I should start wearing t-shirts rather than kurtas, because they all represented the appropriate type of masculine performance, masculine embodiment um, that represented control, modernity, class, gender. And so the body is a very important um, aspect of masculine becoming and masculine performance in India. And as I was saying, I think the focus on the body really helps us focus on um, violence in a very interesting way. What is What are men's bodies doing uh, in urban spaces? How are men's bodies positioned in relationship to women's bodies um, that can help us critically think about uh, men, masculinities and the gendering of urban spaces um, in, in how they produce the city and how they make women experience the city. That's why I think the body is quite an important form of capital.
2: Yeah, that's so, so interesting. Um, You write that young middle-class and dominant caste men who are quote-unquote smart neoliberal subjects demand the removal of the urban poor in the name of change and development. Could you talk about um, how casteism that this violent statement reveals um, is, is justified in popular balance?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a classic... Sort of uh, drawing room middle class conversation. The, what are the what are the problems of India? The problems of India are the poor, the overpopulation, it's uh, the uneducation, you know, the corruption. It's that kind of middle class narrative that these young men also keep embodying and keep talking about it's also a narrative a very dangerous narrative that's often reproduced in policy and uh, programmatic discourse that you know the poor in india are the problem if you sort out education or health disparities then we'll get rid of um, caste inequalities gender inequalities um, sexual inequalities somehow development is portrayed as the the source of all problems. India is underdeveloped. That's why we have caste-based discrimination. We have class-based discrimination. Gender-based discrimination. And so, development and economic progress will change all of that. Will remove all of that. And that's precisely, I think, this commonsensical narrative that I want to challenge. Because um, because these young men are enjoying all kinds of privileges and saying these these kinds of drawing room comments these tropes, essentially, Um, and and situating the blame of all of this on the poor, um, on the working classes, on the um, lower castes, in that sense, because that's where the problems are. Uh, That's where the projection of all of India's problems are um, narrativized and externalized. Um, So, it these, these views are getting more and more justified as India is more and more becoming a neoliberal um, project, right? It's the project keeps expanding and becoming a broader and broader part of how the country is imagined. Who is a good citizen? What is development for India like? Um, the It's promoting extremely neoliberal, um, individualistic approaches to uh, inequalities and problems of India um, which completely um, sidestep the root causes of the problem they are only interested in the symptoms of the problems they're not actually engaging with the deeper levels of caste class and gender inequality that we have the roots of poverty that are within capitalist or caste based structures in India that's not being addressed um, and so it becomes somehow Quite easily justified for these young men that yes, if India keeps developing, if if it keeps modernising, all of these problems will disappear. Um, it's the line that the the broader developmentalist project, the development industry, is also projecting and and emphasising as the root or as a solution for India's problems. But actually I'm arguing that it's making the problems worse. It's producing new forms of gendered inequality, new forms of caste inequality, new forms of sexual inequalities. And these new forms of inequalities are more insidious. They're more difficult to address. So with my young men, they would hate the idea of them being labelled as castist or sexist because they think of themselves as non-caste or casteless people, as post-patriarchal men. Yet in fact they are deeply patriarchal, they are deeply castist and their caste and uh, gender privilege are working through their class privilege in new and complex ways.
2: Right. Um. This was a very, very nuanced and interesting conversation, Shannon. I'm I'm so glad we could do this. I realise we are at the end um, of this interview, but before we let you go, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that I didn't get a chance to explore in this book is the role of technology and dating apps. So with a lot of these young men, they are meeting women on dating apps, on Facebook, um, on Instagram. And so the next project is really looking at what dating apps is doing to uh, to gender and sexual lives of young people in India. Um, a lot of uh, literature already exists how Facebook or Instagram have a huge representation of men, and these young men of mine often would send unwanted messages, take screenshots of women, they would send um, a friend requests to women that they don't know but they just find attractive, and. Try and somehow um, harass them into communicating, con- conversing, um, sexting, and getting into conversations. So that's the next project to look at online spaces and how gender online is getting um, complicated and its various inequalities are getting reproduced, but equally, what new avenues there are now that are emerging. Um, so that's the new project, thinking quite literally about digital India and online techno-masculinities is what I'm calling it.
2: I, I very much look forward to reading that whenever it comes out. Um, thank you so much, Shannon, for, for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Ohini. It It's an absolute pleasure and always so good to talk about the book and think with somebody else about it. Thank you.